Welcome to the Off Days Podcast. I'm your host, PJ. This is episode five, and today we're doing a duos podcast. That's right, just one other host. That's Jake. Jake, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for thanks for having me again. Yeah, yeah, I'm really thrilled to have you here. It's going to be an exciting one-on-one conversation, which is, you know, quite different than the normal format of this podcast, which should lead yeah. to some maybe some more in-depth discussions about things. We, we are a bit worried that we'll be agreeing too much, but we'll start acting erratically. One-on-one conversations maybe are less dynamic, but I think they can go into more depth at the sacrifice of um, less perspective. What I've been thinking about a lot lately, Jake, is this whole new genome editing trend that's, a, that's occurring in the world. And recently, I don't know if you saw, but the FDA permitted our somatic cell editing of male mitochondrial DNA. And that's because males do not pass on mitochondria, right? So it, this is, a, in, a, in a sense, this is a, a, a modification that will remain confined to the organism which has been modified. You know, this is an, an, this is an inheritable modification. Yeah, and so, okay, so we have that safety, and also, you didn't say this, but probably this, you're talking about humans right now. Yeah, talking about humans, which is normally germline or somatic cell editing for humans has been just completely outlawed. And when I, when I say germline or somatic cell, what I'm referring to is germline would be sperm and egg. And so doing a modification, of genetic modification using some genome editing technique like CRISPR or something else on sperm cell progenitors or uh, egg cell progenitors such that all the eggs and all the sperm produced would have a different genotype, a different set of genes somewhat than the organism which is creating them. That's called germline cell editing. And I think that's probably the most contentious of all of the possible editings that exist that we could be doing. So most people, even uh, most biologists, I would say, are highly concerned and cautious about the idea of germline cell editing. However, somatic cell editing is a different story. Somatic cells are those cells that are the cells of our body that are not our sperm or our eggs. So the skin on your body, all this, all your skin is somatic cells. You know, all your eyeball cells are somatic cells. And modifying those is not as concerning, right? Because those cells don't are, are not creating inheritable changes. Yeah. Okay. But, so it's just restricted to the one person who's receiving the ever. Would you call it treatment or operation? I guess it depends on what's being used for. I think you call it a, a therapy. In this case, I think you're talking about therapy, gene therapy. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but the, the problem is, is that people aren't even okay. Like when I say people, I mean scientists and regulatory institutions are not even okay with allowing somatic cell gene editing to occur because they're concerned about off-target effects. In other words, they're concerned about the therapy being used to edit somatic cells accidentally editing germline cells, right? So 
Hey, quickly, give me another piece of background here. Is this something that would happen in uh, like uh, an unborn human first? Like, I'm we're not talking about like X Men: The Last Stand, where <laughs> you just go through this just unexplained weird transition, and then suddenly you do or don't have powers. Like, is this this oh. is something that it wouldn't be like um, like a sex change operation where this person is an adult and makes a decision to get their cells changed in some way, right? Yeah, no, I mean, well, there are there are a number of ways this could go. And it depends, I think. I mean, I mean, there's it's such a hugely, it has a lot of potential, this whole field. Like, for instance, like, there you could have a somatic, this doesn't exist yet, but I mean, like, whoever figures it out and then implements it in China, because there's no way it would be legal here, <laughs> uh, would probably make a fortune. But, like, imagine if you had a gene, uh, somatic gene therapy, that was able to modify the genes and hair follicles to make them receptive to, uh, you know, growth factors and, and, and hormones again, you know, such that you could reverse male balding. Yeah. You know? So that like, that's one sense, right? But then there's the more likely sense, which is modifying, uh, somatic cells at like an early stage blastula in an embryo such that you can more easily modify a smaller number of cells. And then implant that modified embryo into a uterus using IVF. That's another sense. And then, but then, and then of course, the third sense would be, like I said, germline cell editing, where you just modify the sperm progenitor cells or the egg progenitor cells in the organisms that are going to have a baby. And then those organisms have a baby. And then you have a baby which has new traits that could not have been predicted if you were to do a genome sequencing of the somatic cells of either the male or the female that, that did the mating. Are you tracking? Yeah, I got it. <clears throat> so, so yeah. So the, the reason why the, the reason why somatic cell gene therapy doesn't happen is because they're all they're already afraid. They're too, they're too afraid that a somatic gene therapy could have off-target effects on sperm progenitor cells or egg progenitor cells that might cause uh, an unintentional germline cell edit. Right. So that's why the only thing they're allowing at this point is the modification of male mitochondrial somatic cells because there are no mitochondria in male germline cells. And so this modification has no way that it could possibly lead to an inheritable trait, right? Yeah. So I'm going to ask you this question now, Jake. Do you think it is ethical to make germline or somatic cell gene therapy legal? Uh, and if so, under what conditions, et cetera? Oh, my first thought, the place where it seems most dangerous for me is I would be most okay with it being legal personally if they were um, an adult. You know, I earlier compared something like this to a sex change operation. That to me seems perfectly all right. If you want to have lizard scales on your right arm <laughs> and we can figure out a way to do that for you, right. I think that's fine. That, that's, that's body modification. That's aesthetics. Um, but also... In that same vein, it could be um, something very life-saving. Um, so, so that's good. But then, if we start to talk about life-saving things, then we start to backpedal in the yeah I'm concerned with. And I think it's pretty much not debatable that if you keep lowering the age of this therapy, uh, the the age of the person receiving this therapy, the consent argument gets more and more difficult to make. Right. Okay. If you're going to remove a huge tumor from a newborn child, mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense to ask them for consent because right. I mean, so that's a thorny subject, I think. And the reason why I fall on the side of let's make it legal of let's do it. Let's try it. Let's be cautious. And I don't need to say that because 
obviously, um, American scientists are very cautious about this, but it's this weird situation of if we invent this, anyone does. And then if we don't jump on that wagon, someone else will. And now because we've tried to take some sort of ethical stance and stayed out of the game, now we've completely lost the impetus. And it's almost, it reminds me of what almost happened with aviation, uh, Obviously, being an aerospace major, I'm going to talk about right. aviation. And for I'm a glad hot you do because I, I like uh, aviation. Uh, when the the Wright brothers were really not, uh, and not just the Wright brothers, but they're the most famous, of course, of the early aviators, they weren't apparently pushing the right buttons for the uh, Americans, especially the American military, right as they were coming out with their this brand new flying technology. Um, but you know what nation actually was really excited about it was the UK, and even more than that was France. It's not a coincidence that a lot of the terminology associated with airplane parts are actually French. You have things like fuselage and mm. canard. Yeah, uh, These are all French terms. So then had a world war where all every country and their mother wanted to hop onto this and pick up this technology. Thank goodness... The United States was also interested in that. Um, and then, of course, in the 20s and 30s, everybody, there was this massive, almost kind of like the the um, Cold War style nuclear race or space race. It was a similar thing for aviation. Everybody's building better and better, better planes. And that's why you see the time in World War II and not so much in World War I is because we didn't put it on pause between wars. Right. The reason why I go into that whole history is because it seems to me that, and this is kind of an inflation of the situation, but it still communicates the same point. If we don't jump on this technology, and the Chinese do, and now they all have super soldiers, like, <laughs> we're screwed. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I see what you mean. It, it would have been better for us to have made our own super soldiers so that we could retain the power of the world because, you know, there's there's a lot of conversations for and against American exceptionalism, but... Um, I, I think it's pretty easy to say that never before, uh, hopefully, hopefully after, but certainly never before has a superpower been so super powerful and also the world's been a great place. I don't think that's a coincidence. We, the United States has abused its power, but you know, it's not the, it's not the Sassanids. Right. Was no, way yeah. worse. I, I would agree with you. you know? Like, I think that the, the size and power of a single empire and like we don't have to call america empire but isn't it but like that's just it my so opinion. is it sucks <laughs> yeah i mean i'm not proud of that but i'm just saying that there's never been an empire so powerful which has coincided temporally with such a uh, prosperous world i mean i'm not saying that the world doesn't have its fair share of poverty it certainly does um but yeah i know i hardly hardly agree with you there i mean we're, we're not mongols anymore just throwing diseased heads into our neighbor's castles. Uh, we totally could. Yeah. Like, it no. would not be hard at That's, all yeah. to make war on the continent of Africa. Like, the whole <laughs> continent. We could do it, and we would win. But we don't, because, you know, we hold ourselves to these standards. And also, there's, like, you know, a European power balance, blah, blah, blah. Um, that This was left over after World War II. You had this power balance of the UN and NATO and all that stuff. Right. Um, and now you've got emerging powers in East Asia and all that stuff. 
Still, though, if we wanted to be an evil empire, we totally could. And I mean, and some people don't. would say that, like, we still are. And that's, some, that's, that's a good argument. You can make that argument just saying that, like, we're doing all of those things, like, you know, raping and pillaging uh, smaller third world countries or whatever. But we're just doing it more subtly. I mean, that's people can make that argument and then, like, probably not a bad argument to make. But even if, even if you're making that argument, it's still note that the subtle approach to getting what you want as a nation is more civilized than the just conquering mindset of our yeah. ancestors. So I mean, let's let's even look recently. What other world power, when they were in control in history, acted so well? What other world power world power would have made Guantanamo such a contentious point? Because right. like the Americans, we don't have to beat ourselves up about it if we don't want to. But we do want to. Like, do you think um the British Empire of uh, the the one that just barely decided, okay, and uh, you can be your own thing. We'll partition you up. It's going to be shit for you, but you can leave if you want. Or <laughs> yeah. how about Napoleon's France? Do you think they would have had qualms about Guantanamo? Yeah, I don't no, think so. of course not. But I, I also wonder to what degree this sort of like like nationwide masochism is new. I, mean, I don't think this existed in the fifties. To, to maybe it did, but not to the same degree. You know, I mean, it, it was not so much a thing that. I don't think we beat ourselves up so much. I said that's that would be hard for me to have an educated opinion on. You've got a few other forces happening at the same time right. because um, it used to be that there were like three or four news channels on TV and there wasn't like all this crazy competition <laughs> yeah, to true. make news the same as entertainment. Yeah. Um, that's so, and that's is. also a significant cultural problem that is threatening our democracy as we've seen. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, so the, we talked Back about this subject. because you wanted to make the point that if we don't jump on this technology now, then it could have repercussions because we'll, we'll be unable to uh, match up with the world and also unable to regulate in an educated way. Right. I mean, I think that that's what you were trying yeah. to say. Yeah. That, that is really what I'm interested in is we need to be on top of this so that we can regulate <laughs> Yeah, so I think that you would agree with me at this point in thinking that oh, th this technology is inevitable and that it doesn't make sense to push it away. As something. yes, so yeah, fuck. I've made. I, I'm not I've happy made. that we agree, but but we're only we're getting started, right? Yes, which it's, it's it's the night's young, man. Uh, <laughs> beyond that point, though, um, we should be in control of it, and I think it's perfectly fair for us to unfairly limited in other countries we can pass sanctions if they try to do this we can north korea them and be like no we can have them but you can't you know i think that's fair for a technology <laughs> like this well it's no it's not fair i think that's just because i don't trust anyone as much as i trust the united states to handle this in in the most human uh in a humanitarian way yeah. and i think it wouldn't be crazy if we suddenly found out oh this is evil technology and we should stop it yeah i think that's not off the table and that's where you and i very well could disagree yeah well so i think we might disagree particularly like where, about where it's justified to do this right so you know for instance it's i think it's justified to modify the germline cells of any person who has certain diseases uh, for which we know exactly what bases to change in the, in the DNA to eradicate the disease, right? So for instance, like, let's say like phenylketonuria, which is a disease that uh, messes with your ability to deal with certain amino acids in such a way that it causes birth defects, mental 
deficiencies if you don't have the right diet, etc. It's a really difficult uh, disease to have. PKU is the name of the disease. We know how to eradicate that disease by modifying a few base pairs in the genome. And currently, whenever you come out as a baby, they do a little they do a little heel prick on your heel as a baby, and then they'll use your blood to determine if you have PKU. I think actually now they do now they do a blood test and they find the DNA of they do they do a blood test of the mother and they find the DNA of the child in that blood, um, and then they do it that way so they they can actually preempt PKU. But what I'm trying to say is that there are certain diseases like that, and there are many more, but certainly not enough, but there are many diseases like that which the genetics are not completely understood. I don't think we completely understand the genetics of almost any disease, but very well understood. And for those diseases where the genes, where changing the genes would have no negative effects and only positive ones, and also that also that the change is very small, um, that we have every reason to modify the germline cells of those people because there's no, like they're, they're at this point not only are they are they a cost to the state in terms of healthcare, they're also it's also reducing suffering generally if we if we take this out of the gene pool. Yeah. Um, so, but well, first of all, let me ask you: Do you agree with that or not? Do should do you think that that these sorts of diseases should be eradicated? Or not? Kind of fuzzy terms. I do agree with it because in the areas of fuzziness, I trust um, people like you and scientists to be making the right decisions here. And so you you said something like, no, uh, we know how to do this. Well, to what degree of certainty? I tend to trust American scientists to be quite certain. You know, when you, when you use that kind of terminology, I just wanted to point out that um, this is a place likely where someone like Bridget may say, well, there's always some uncertainty and I would be ready to rebut that. In yeah. that way, like I'm ready to give maybe more license than I would to other kinds of people um, to that level of trust. That said, I do um, it, with that condition. Yeah, I do. I'm on board with you there. Okay. Okay. So, but and of course, now I'm talking about, and I was only talking about the set of diseases, which we know that we know so much about that it would be, it would be absolutely unexpected if changing this one or two or three base pairs in this one gene locus would cause some different effect than we thought of. So like what, what in the same way that uh, an appendectomy would be really surprising if it made their heart explode. Right. Like exactly. But, but in, in a sense, we, like the, the way that our organs are connected are interconnected is much more well understood than the way that our genes are interconnected. Right. So this comes from like the simple formula that I'm sure you, you have intuited in your brain, but like I'll spell it out for you in an explicit way, which is that the variance in genes, the variance in genotype or VG as we call it, plus the variance in environment or VE equals, and this is for a population by the way, equals the variance in phenotype or the physical traits, the variance in the physical traits of that population. So what you have to understand is that genes have a, have a, have a, they play out in a, in a way which changes the way the physical thing, that the, the physical traits of an organism will be. That's obvious. We know that our genes dictate our appearance and our traits. That's obvious. But there is also an environmental factor that greatly influences the physical traits that we have, right? So that's why twins don't look exactly the same. Even though they have identical genes, they look slightly different because of environmental factors. But it's also important to understand that genes have different effects depending on the context of the genome. So like genes interact with other genes, just as genes interact with the environment. And all of these things come together to create the physical traits. So that's why I'm saying that it's very possible that making small changes in the genome, like I'm proposing, could have unexpected consequences. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Your, your variance equation, um, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this. 
a good example for that, or tell me if I'm wrong, a good example for that would be adult human height, where you have these set of genes, but there's also environmental factors. Um, you know, classically, if you're malnourished as a child, you're not going to be as tall as you otherwise right. maybe could have yeah, been. That's exactly right. From yeah. your genes alone. But then, but then it's also important to note that let's say that there are five genes that dictate height, right, in a population. And let's say that we thought for maybe 50 years that five genes dictated height, but then we found some other population of humans that were very, very tall. And we found that they have a different gene which has nothing to do with height in other, other populations but somehow interacts with the other five genes that have to do with height in a way which amplifies them or something. This is what I, this is what I mean by genes interact with other genes, right? Yeah. So genes that maybe have no obvious effect on a, a certain trait can have an effect uh, depending on the context. So th- there's just so many unknowns when it comes to genes because there are so many genes and because we know so little about the way that proteins and RNA interacts in the cell, uh, so that's why I, I'm I'm so hesitant and so uh, and so trying to be so clear when I say that we would only I would only support germline cell editing in the case of diseases that we know everything about or almost everything about. Right now, I, th- I think we're in agreement there. But this is where I also this is what I also think. I also think that for those who can afford it, we should allow germline cell editing of traits such as those which are aesthetic and also those which improve health in general. And I know that's very contentious because this leads to the whole like Gattaca argument, right? But I think that if I want my son to have... I was wondering how long we would go until one of us said Gattaca. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm just saying like, if I want my son to have fast twitch muscle genes, but I have, I'm I'm homozygous for the non-fast twitch alleles, I don't give a, I don't give a heck Jake, <laughs> I don't give a heck because I heck. Oh my goodness! I don't. <laughs> I want your language. I want to be able to Why use my friends? money to pay for a modification in my child, which will make him more fit than me. Not physically fit. I mean, reproductively fit <laughs> in every sense of the word. I, I want to make his hairline more symmetrical than mine. I want to make his hair more thick. I want to make his face more symmetrical. I want to make his sense of smell more sharp. You know, I want to, I want to do all of the things like that. I want to change all of the alleles in his genome, which from their non-favorable trait to their favorable trait in a way which we know will produce favorable traits. And that's kind of redundant. What, you know, see, see what I'm trying to say? Do you agree that I, that? See what you, uh, okay. Or not. Before I agree or disagree, I want to probe you in this way. Okay. Oh, <laughs> never mind. I'm <laughs> going to <be> Okay. <laughs> you want to ask me what question? Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so comparisons or or some contrasts between that and wanting to pay for my daughter's college education. Okay. And I'm having a lot of trouble in my brain making any um, substantial difference, it, it, drawing any substantial differences <laughs> between those two. It seems in both cases, you're paying your own money to provide a maybe not necessarily a better head start but to give your child a better chance in the world and you're doing it out of a place of care for your own child right and it's based on your own judgment of 
what is going to be good for your child. Yeah. Or, or even like you could, this is like, you could say this is like giving a child braces in a sense, sure. you know, like that costs quite a bit of money. I mean, not terribly a lot, but a lot. And a lot of people can't Maybe afford one that. area is with a college um, degree, obviously your child's going to have more consent in that case. Um, but um, you're still providing that opportunity. So consent is, a, is maybe one area where it differs. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that I find myself finding any, any other major well, differences. Well, I mean, there. one of the other major differences is that, you know, let's say that you paid for your son or daughter to go to college, right? There is no guarantee that her progeny will go to college. But if we were to do germs, germline cell editing on you and you know, like it, it is now what your progeny and all of the further progeny off of them will have is that as the genes that you have edited, you know, like it, it's that, a very permanent thing. Well. It's very permanent. And so and I think the main the main concern people have about this, and I'm, I'm sure that you, you've had it in your brain just in the process of speaking with me and I'm sure in the past is that this can lead to a stratification of, of social classes, which, right. you know, which, which corresponds to genetic purity rank or genetic, uh, just genetic rank in general. Right. Oh, okay. I, <coughs> the whole social class stratification, maybe this is just because this is a convenient position to take. It's hard for me to, get outside of my head as much as I'd like to I just find myself really annoyed and frustrated when someone starts to say something along the lines of, Oh, well, what is the other side of society going to think about that? Especially when it's something impinging on personal freedom, which I hold very highly. Mm. Um, I, I think if we allowed this sort of thing where we keep all the rest of our laws and everything, I mean, you still have to follow the freaking law. Right. Um, it, it just seems to me that unfair to, and, and well, not unfair, I should say this would be unfair, but it would be even more unfair, definitely for you to enhance your progeny in that way. Unfair in your favor. But I mean, I, that to me just seems true, but it would be unjust to limit you from doing that. I think it would, because if we Let's distance ourselves from the opinion of someone who cannot pay for that sort of thing. But that, let's look at it from a, like a personal you know, freedom the human race sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, or, or the opposite direction. The human race, aren't we making an improvement here? Right. It seems to me that, sure, you're going to have a stratification, but I would be really surprised if that stratification um, continued to widen. It may up, and there's always going to be a gap there, but I think... It just doesn't make sense to me that the bottom is going to stay at their level because if you want to draw the same comparison with like um, standard of living in the United States, we can talk about poverty um, in the United States, but it's kind of silly to talk about it if you don't compare it to poverty in India, which is so much worse. So right. someone can be below the poverty line in the United States and still have an iPhone 6. <laughs> yeah. That's not insane. Um, and so what I'm trying to illustrate here is the poverty line has still worked its way up. We still have this gap, but considered in poverty in the United States, by and large, are not um, pumping their own water from a well and killing their own chickens, you right. know, yeah. um, if they're if they have enough money to do that. Yes, I agree that it would result in stratification. And yes, there would be you could argue that there would be two or more classes of humans 
but I find it hard to believe that you would continue to have a this lower class of humans that stays low and you get some sort of is it brave new world that sort of thing right yeah well brave new world is is a little different because in brave new world well it isn't really that different i mean in brave new world it's it's literally they have embryos you know test tube babies that are being grown of different qualities you know and i I mean honestly i don't think that I think Aldous Huxley is a brilliant prognosticator. I don't think that his perception or his his conception, I should say, of what this could look like was very accurate. Just in the sense that there will be the stratification of classes for this reason. As time goes on, the price of gene therapy should go down just substantially. I mean, it should. I say it should because there are always political interests trying to keep things at a certain price level for whatever reason, you know, yeah. but this should become something which is very easy to do. There, there's no reason. I mean, the, it's like having birth and giving birth in a hospital. It's like, what do you mean you didn't give birth in a hospital? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and also the, like, there's nothing about germline or somatic cell gene therapy, even now, which is extremely prohibitively, prohibitively expensive, like the materials, just in, in, in terms of the materials. And I mean, a lot of the, cost that's associated with it comes from the research which has gone into establishing the the framework for it right so what i'm trying to say is that the the platform to do these sorts of therapies if we had it streamlined if we had it scaled up industrially should not be very expensive and so for that reason everyone should be able to get it if they want to and therefore if everyone has an equivalently high quality genome if, if everyone has genes which are equivalently superior and disease-free. They have every variant of every gene that interacts with every variant of every gene in a way which is favorable. Then if you have people who are below the poverty line and they aren't genetically inferior, then those people are just lazy, right? So then, then poverty will not become a problem of this person has this disease and couldn't do this thing, or this person has this familial background which didn't give him or her the advantages that he or she needed. At that point, it will be that person's lazy. Like they don't have any excuse anymore. I'm not saying that the only excuse is genetics, but I mean, when you have perfect genes, your opportunity should just explode, right? But I, I guess, I guess in that case, though, the level of opportunity shouldn't grow that much because the the everyone's opportunity is rising, right? So the so yours relatively doesn't change i don't know this is an interesting philosophical question which i've just posed to myself yeah that's you you're, it's that's very hairy i i actually couldn't begin to know how to parse that and and, and unpack yeah. that i actually didn't um, I, I didn't know what i was going to say until i said it there <laughs> and i kind of drew myself into a rabbit hole but what i'm trying to say is that i don't think that it's going to lead to a stratification of classes because I think everyone should be able to afford it, or it should be so it should be so inexpensive that the government could subsidize it easily. I anticipated that that we would talk about the government involvement in that because I would find it really hard to believe that the government would not. I mean, we know enough about that they're probably already making super soldiers. <laughs> they're probably already doing it. And that to me is where ethically, where I don't have questions, I have some pretty heavy disagreement. And okay. I, I would like, I really disagree with doing something like making a super soldier. And I don't think it's difficult to um, imagine why, because you've just created this human who thinks and feels, unless you've engineered them not to, I guess. 
but then that would be a pretty terrible soldier. The best soldiers are super intelligent and adaptable. I, I think it would be a, just a massive human human rights crime to make a super soldier someone who is born to be serving this country and they never there was never any kind of consent there. And I think that is highly dangerous. Okay, I think okay. that let and me even rephrase probable. Let me maybe restructure the question then. Maybe maybe you can tell me if you agree with this or not. I, I understand that you don't think super soldiers, like creating a super soldier is an ethical thing to do because you're creating someone to be put in a violent role. And that is, and if you if someone's destined to be in violence, that's 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 obviously a human rights crime, right? But but what if you were to notice, like what if scientists notice that okay like current flying technologies, like you like aviation, like let's say current fighter jet technologies. And like, let's just say that in the future, infantry becomes a, like a very rare thing to implement in, in, the, in the battlefield, right? I'll say that most of what we do is mechanized warfare in the future. I'm just making a prediction. Okay. And so you want someone who, who is going to be able to fly, you know, the eighth generation fighter jet you have with such a high degree of skill. I mean, now this is assuming that we don't just put robots in every fighter jet in the future, which is probably what's going to happen. But I'll just take your argument. That's but fine. yeah, let's just pretend like that's not what's going to happen. Okay, let's assume that scientists noticed that if you change XYZ genes in humans, their ability to pilot aircraft and their ability to have reflexes and their ability to resist G-forces changes to such a degree that they are, you know, X-fold better pilots, okay? Would you be against rearing people to be pilots? Yeah. You would? Yes, I would. So you do not I, see any difference there? figure out how we could use that if we if scientists did notice that. I'm I'm trying to decide how ethically we could go about that, saying let's uh, you know, this obviously is not the same case as a super soldier, but still you're they're altering someone with the intent of having them fill this role once they become an adult. And uh, they're their decision really is not a it's not a factor. I think if that was noticed, then it would be all right if parents were like, "Well, I want my kid to be a pilot. My daughter would be. I'm sure she'd be a great pilot. I know she would, and we're going to make sure she is." And so now this child is born that has this uh, genetic capability. Now they have a choice um, to be a pilot. If they do choose that, then that would be they would have a better time at it. They would be better at it. It's almost like if you notice that you're born. And your adult height is seven and a half feet tall. It's pretty good for you to decide to be in the NBA, right? You know, assuming that you have other important skills and qualities. If scientists noticed this and released it as an option to parents indirectly, yeah, the United States would get better fighter pilots. I think because you would just increase the chances that these tailored fighters would decide to go into the Air Force. And now we have it; no one's rights are being violated. I don't think. Yeah. Um, I mean, assuming that like the program where someone is reared, I'm just saying, assuming that like the the genes you've changed haven't changed them to such a degree that it changes their quality of life in any, any other, in any other domain of life. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I took those assumptions. Okay. Okay. I am against a government program targeted towards, um, raising individuals who are intended to be pilots. And in fact, in any profession, really, um, or any occupation, I, I I don't like someone who is born and it's hard to determine what they're going to be doing. Yeah, I see. I see your qualms with that. I, I understand. But let me let me maybe re- restructure the argument again for you. So you, like maybe put a new perspective on it here. We've noticed a high degree of homology or similarity pairwise between the DNA of humans and chimpanzees. I mean, it's it's insane how similar we are. 
It's, incre- it's incredible. Um, and the differences in our DNA and the chimpanzee's DNA, we, st- we still haven't figured out exactly how those subtle changes have translated into a tenfold increase in intelligence, if not more. So it stands, stands to reason that extremely small modifications to the genes of humans or any organism can have profound effects on the traits that we value. So like, for instance, it seems entirely possible to me that a modification of certain genes in the mitochondrial DNA, that is the genes inside of the, the mitochondria, the little bacteria that exist inside of our cells that produce energy in the form of ATP for us. I know you know the that. The powerhouse of the cell. Yeah. If we were to, and they have their own DNA that's separate from ours, a whole different chromosome, if you didn't know that. It's only passed down from mother to progeny. Okay. Sorry for that aside. But let's say that- oh, we were, I'm sorry. You probably weren't explaining that for me, so I, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm well, it definitely wasn't. Anyway, I know, I know you know what it is, but and it's not a shameful thing if anyone else doesn't know what it is because it's like I didn't know what it was until recently. I mean, not that recently. I'm just trying to say that this is a domain of discourse which does not always, one does not always engage in. So I'm trying to define terms as I use them. Okay, sorry, getting back to it. Um, I'm just saying it makes sense to me that a small modification in mitochondrial DNA could possibly create a small increase in energy output of every cell, right? Maybe just like a 1% increase in energy output. Like we, we've changed one amino acid in your ATP synthase gene or one amino acid in your electron transport chain, which increases your ability to make ATP like a small, tiny degree in terms of percent efficiency, okay? But let's say that now that tiny change has created an incredible increase of energy and strength and endurance in the human who was edited, right? Let's say, let's say the same thing can be done for intelligence. Let's say the same thing can be done for a number of traits, okay? Then from that perspective, do you think that it is not warranted to be experimenting with these things just from the perspective of the potential that it holds? Do you understand yeah, what I'm It's warranted. To- in fact, I think it, we have the obligation to experiment with that because there's a strong chance that if we don't do that, then we're missing out on massive quality of life and just societal improvements in the future. Right. Okay. It, it would be like saying, um, I don't know, steam engines are pretty loud and noisy. We as society think they're bad, so we're not going to have the industrial revolution. <laughs> no, it seems to me like that's the same risk you're running by choosing not to experiment with that knowledge. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I guess the real question becomes then, is it ethical to experiment on humans? Right. And most people would say it's not. But if we don't experiment on humans, there's really no way we can make these kinds of breakthroughs. Right. Doing doing these sorts of modifications on mice simply isn't. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it's very applicable, right? The, doing Alzheimer's studies on mice, understanding cellular biology using mouse models, and a number of things you can you can do, like almost everything you can do on every not everything, but a lot of things you can do in mice that are so applicable to humans. But in this case, w- when we're talking about making a new quantum leap forward in genetic quality, you have to start from the baseline here, which is humans. And so the only way I see this working is if we create a framework to experiment using human subjects this is something which is whenever i I, suggest this it's just always pushed back against so hard the idea that we could experiment using humans um what do you think about that we all understand people who talk about this seriously we understand that there's a risk and even a likelihood that you're going to you're going to cause at least some level of human suffering likely i it, it seems to me 
implausible that you wouldn't. Um, at the very least, you run a very high risk of causing human suffering of some kind. Um, and it's kind of a trade that you need to make. You have to make a judgment call almost where you say, you know, that um, maybe it's worth it. And that's hard because who's qualified to make that call? So that I, that's what I was thinking first. And then I followed this path. I think that torture of like a terrorist or something mm. should be illegal. Governments should not be allowed to do it. But I think, I think that should be the rule. But I think that every now and then a government or an entity or something like that made the call to break that rule because it's it's decided to be, while not strictly ethical, it's better in some other way. Like, let's say you're really against torture, but this guy has the the secret to defusing the bomb that's attached to your child. Right. You're probably going to torture him, right. you know? Okay, so you're you saying want. the potential So for... I think it should be a rule that you don't do it, but it could be a rule that could be broken in the same way this sort of... And, and it wouldn't be very damnable if you broke the rule. Maybe some people get fired and they take the fall for that and they know it, but they know they did the right thing. In this case... Maybe a way that we could get around this, because it is a serious ethical problem, this human experimentation where you're probably causing human suffering. It's strictly not, or it's it's said to be not allowed, but it is done anyway behind closed doors. And the benefits that we reap a bit, reap from it are, well, society reaps those benefits, and society is just flatly lied to about the bad things and about the evils that happen. I, that's that is such a almost a painful position to take, but that to me seems like the best way to. At the very least, you have to say that we're probably going to be causing some harms because when has an experiment ever? I mean, how often does an experiment go as expected? Yeah, not not one hundred percent of the time. Rarely, actually, I think I would say. I mean, and yeah. yeah, I mean, you're right. I think that we know what we know about medicine because people have died again and again and again and again and and they've died for the same reasons and we've and we've we've learned maybe not fast enough not maybe not yeah, nearly fast enough but also we've not just been cutting out corpses we've also been pretty catastrophically killing people with our medical science right yeah I mean, <laughs> where if we had been hands off beforehand like if we hadn't done all the bloodletting they probably would have been better off you know yeah. so if we could have known ahead of time that mutation is a bad thing to do would it still have been justified to pursue it, I think um, it's almost a case. It is a case, absolutely, is a case of the ends justify the means. Yeah, and especially if no one knows about the means. Yeah, I think so I've just I've just talked about personal freedom earlier, but now I'm advocating state secrets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, it goes to show you, yeah, the double standards we can set for ourselves. But I think that the one of the differences between, like we were saying, the bloodletting that allowed for the advancement of surgical techniques and the experimentation that would have to allow for that we that would allow for um, human genetic advancement is that a lot of the time when when the early surgeons were going to go and operate on someone, you know, the rationale they would give them was, look, you have uh, placenta previa, and your daughter's going to die, and you're probably going to die, or your son's going to die, and you're probably going to die if we if we if you deliver this baby naturally. But we can try and operate. It's never been successfully done, but if you don't let us operate. You have zero chance. If you let us operate, you have some chance. That's not zero. That that was always the rationale, right? But in the case of advancing genetic superiority of human beings, there is no such rationale. We, we could we could feasibly go on our way without modifying our genes at all, and feasibly maybe this would cause people to die who wouldn't otherwise. But that 
that sense of urgency is not there. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Um, hold on. I may have been under some, we might have some misunderstanding here. When you say human experimentation, are you talking about adults already? Or are we talking about you make a human and experiment on it? I'm talking about making a human. Like I'm talking about doing a, like modifying an embryo at like the one cell stage or, you know, modif- That's what I thought. or something like that. And then you, then you've raised this new human with new genetics and you're seeing how that plays out. You know, I think that's a pretty different case though, from saying, um, y'all are both going to die. And the only chance that you won't is if we operate, that's pretty different from we're going to make this human and experiment on them. Well, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that I'm saying that bloodletting whether it was whether it was like a baby you're having a baby and you needed surgery or wh- whether it was just uh some disease like you know uh pancreatic cancer you know like a long time ago before we had any way of treating it we still have very little ways of treating it but let's say that like some person in like 1910 had pancreatic cancer and some surgeon of the day said hey i can resect your pancreas or do a pancreatectomy or something or i don't know in a way and and this is almost certainly going to kill you but if you don't let us then you're pancreatic cancer will definitely kill you right this allows for a rationale to do the surgery i mean so but there's no such what i'm trying to say is there's no such rationale for genetic experimentation like it's it's superfluous and and that's the problem that people they don't automatically see that you're giving them some opportunity they they see that you are allowing a life to be lived for experimentation and that they see that as an evil thing and they don't see the immediate potential to be gained there. And I don't think that anyone, just given given the way that humans value life in general, I don't think that anyone, almost almost anyone, would permit, morally permit in their brains the, the generation of humans with novel gen- genetics for the simple purpose of experimentation. Would you not agree with that? I agree. It, it yeah. definitely strikes me in a, in a way that I don't like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people just find that to be a horrendous and disgusting thing. But the reason why I would argue for it, and I I know you said that you think that the only way this could happen is in, uh, you know, state secret laboratory or whatever. And the only reason I would argue for it without any, without any qualms is because I think that I have maybe, I'm not trying to like toot my own horn here, but I think I have maybe a greater um, understanding of the potential that could be reaped from this sort of experimentation. I mean, we learned a lot from the papers that were left behind from Nazis that did vivisections. I was was thinking about bringing that up, but I don't know if that's true. So I'm kind of relieved that you confirmed that for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how much we learned, but I know that there was a lot of valuable information from that. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying we should do vivisections, right? And that's not about that life at all. I mean, it's technically, there are people who, you know, they have done vivisections whenever. Whenever you do a, a organ transplant on someone who is comatose, that's what you're doing a vivisection, right? But I mean, they're talking about looking at then when they when they talk about vivisections in the context of the imperial Japanese or the Nazis. I mean, I think most people are referring to vivisections, which lead or which. Uh, were intended to stimulate the patient in a way while they were opened um, in order to see what that stimulation would do inside of them, right? To learn more. Um, and that, that of course, is horrendous and disgusting. We don't need to do that anymore because we have a really good understanding of how organs work. But at the time, we had so much to learn from that. I've got a related question for you here. Hmm. Um, so you are you are much more comfortable with this than I am, although I'm trying to think of it in a variety of different ways. Um, in ways that you're thinking of it. But I have a question that maybe let's focus on this a little better. We've, we've already said that 
and I guess we're talking about American society right now, would probably not be okay with human experimentation. Right. If you were to lead a team of who did this kind of experimentation, um, caused some notable level of human suffering, and in the end came away with results at least as valuable as this vivisection data that we've talked about, which, by the way, while it was probably a human rights crime, um, it would be an enormous crime not to use that data. Right. You know, yeah, that's, this that's isn't like a court case thing. Yeah. And just, just um, so we're clear, I'm not actually 100% certain about how much we reaped from either the Nazi or J- Japanese vivisections. Let's, let's grant that you were to be chiefly responsible for this sort of activity that did result in some important, uh, very notable increase. Maybe you raise the average human IQ by something like 20 or 30 points mm. um, indirectly. That's what this led to. Would you be all right personally with being remembered forever as a monster for having done this this experimentation? Absolutely. Personally, yes. No, I mean, I... I was going to be surprised at anything else. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's almost a no-brainer for me just because... I have, that's, I don't know. I think everyone wants to make a difference in life, but I think to make a difference in humanity is, is a very, and that, that like speaks to a very visceral part of my nature, which is to like to leave a legacy. And and like, so in a sense that that's like an emotional and personal reason, but also logically, I think it pans out. You know, if you can, if you have to do an experimentation trial on let's say a hundred human embryos over the course of 50 years or something and you, you have a hundred people who grow up with aberrations uh in their genetics which may or may not lead to life altering and and suffer inducing uh physical changes right would i be okay with that doing with inducing those things if it were to improve the lives of millions and millions on end yes i would because well it is monstrous it is also completely warranted i mean well it reminds me of the trolley car problem yeah it reminds me of that very much and if we take a very utilitarian slant absolutely that that does make sense yeah but i think the only slant to take is utilitarian because like what the problem is is that human ethics don't serve us very well uh like i think we've we've both read these studies that show that if you show people numbers the the higher the number gets in terms of like children starving or children who have died of x disease or whatever in x country the higher the number is the less sympathy one seems to feel this is uh peter singer yeah peter singer is that singer's argument um, i think so okay yeah and and so what i'm trying to say is that the our, our intuitions don't serve us very well uh, and this is so this is the interesting rebuttal that mm-hmm interested in the trolley car problem and let me define it real quick for someone who doesn't know what it is um if you are in control of a switch on a track that uh, a trolley car is just running pell-mell down and it's coming straight at um a group of four people who are tied to the tracks and you're in control of a track switch that could change um the motion of the trolley car to instead go to a different track where there's only one person tied to the track, would you throw that switch? And the the overwhelming response when people are asked this is, yes, I would throw the switch. I would um, cause the death of one person 
Um, to save four, right? In exchange for the life to save four. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you can do all kinds of things with these numbers and it still comes out mathematically is it, you know, very utilitarian if it was two people and one person, if it was eight people and four people, you know, it's, it's still people will say what you would expect from mathematics. Right. But then you twist it and you say, all right, same situation, except that's, um, that there's, there's a trolley car hurtling towards four people tied to a track, but instead of being in control of a switch, now you are standing over the track on a bridge and you have a really, really obese person next to you. And you know, let's just take it for granted that if you were to push this person onto the track <laughs> off of this bridge, then they would be heavy enough to bring the trolley car to a stop and save those four lives. And you ask, would you push the fat man? And people almost unanimously say no, even though you're making the same calculation. Yeah. And that's explained by saying, while you still have um, same utilitarian scenario, um, intuitively, uh, while they usually don't know why, uh, intuitively is, is the wrong word, but people tend to feel that they wouldn't want to live in a world where people would push the fat man. Oh, so that's the rationale. Okay, yeah. We're talking about um, a certain act being an indicator of general behavior. So um, my next thought is, I know that you personally would be a monster for the rest of human history. Um, having done that, but would you be okay with living in a world where that sort of, where everyone thought that way, where everyone was okay with being utilitarian, hmm. uh, strictly utilitarian in their ethics? And for me, I have to say no. Difference where I would, I'm like you, I would be okay with being remembered as like a Hitler forever if I added value to the world, but I would probably not want to live in a world where everyone was that utilitarian. Okay. Yeah. So I see what you're saying. You're saying that that these sorts of values and, 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 and moral intuitions that we have perhaps evolved for a reason, or if they didn't evolve for a reason, they at least exist in a way which is amenable to living in a society. And, and I, I agree with that, but I also don't because I think that if people were pragmatic about things, like our, our intuitions would say that, that there would be more evil in the world. But I also think that there would be a lot less inefficiency. And I think there would be th that the human race as a whole would be a lot further along um, in terms of technology. And, oh, and so w I'm glad you qualified that by saying in terms of technology, because we could also ask the question, the question that an Indian ascetic would a ask, which is, well, what makes you think that the world is better now than it was in uh, you know, zero AD? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do we want to talk about human happiness? Do you want to use technology as a measure? And that's a really hard question that I really don't have a response to. That's tough. Yeah, it, that is. We're getting into pretty murky waters. Personally, I want to say technology is yeah, what matters. Yeah. I, I and the re here's why I want to say uh, technology is what matters. It's because when you think about the the arc of our species, it's really hinged on technology. I mean, the, like the technology we have has not only has only changed the amount of suffering that we feel from day to day. It's also changed the amount of individuals that are ca the, the carrying capacity of the earth. Right. The, and I say carrying capacity. That's like an ecological term that refers to the number of individuals that could exist in an ecological niche. If we're, if we're talking about the earth as the ecological niche in question, the carrying capacity of the earth has increased over time due to technology. 
simply because we have been able to learn to cultivate and uh, do agriculture. We've learned how to d- defend ourselves against diseases. We've learned how to do how to communicate really effectively. We do transportation extremely well now. And there, there are all these things that have improved human well-being. And when you think about the arc of our species, technology is the one thing that makes big changes. And it's the one thing which is going to take us from being a one-planet species to a multi-planet species and from a multi-planet species to an interstellar species. And like ultimately, that's the only thing that I think should matter. Because if you think about humans in the way that we are, which is sexual beings, and by sexual I mean every human is unique, besides twins, every human is unique, genetically unique. This is a very distinct thing from, say, um, ants, which are clonal, clonal, right? So no ant has a sense of individuality and ants don't value their own lives because they don't have consciousnesses. But I, I believe that if there was a sentient race of ants that were, that were large and, and, and let's just say size-wise were larger and they were all clonal, right? So they're genetically identical. The whole colony was genetically identical, but each colony represented an individual genetic combination. Then I think that each colony would be genetically and would each colony would, would be valued for its individuality and its individual set of genes. But every individual, every clone, every drone in that, in, in that colony would not be valued and would not value itself. It would not be valued by the colony and it would give its life for the colony. Right. That's interesting. But in, in the same way, humans, every human in a sense is its own colony, right? Its own colony of human cells. So we are, we are a colony of colonies. If you think about it like that, that's what, that's what humanity is. We're a bunch of genetically individual and genetically, genetically unique organisms working together. And that's an impossible thing almost because it's just very difficult to reconcile that. But if you look at human culture in general and you think of it not as, not as a bunch of individuals, but instead as a race, what we are essentially doing right now is we are colonizing earth like it, like we're a fungus on a substrate. Like, like we're fungus eating up a petri dish, right? And we, we've, we've pretty much covered the whole petri dish. Okay. And at this point, there's only one thing left to do, and that's make spores and find a new goddamn petri dish. That's the only thing we can do. And that's, and the pattern extends from fungi to humans. I, th- I think we are heterotrophic, destructive organisms. And that's, we, we don't create energy. We, we consume it, you know, and we have to go out and find new sources of energy, new substrate to live on and to feed off of. I mean, it's a sad thing to say, but we are not, we, we are not organisms that produce we're not plants plants produce energy we're not that we don't produce anything which i mean like it's a sad thing that we're destructive but we have to accept our biological circumstances and decide that we're going to go out and we're going to do what we are biologically born to do which is find new substrate and keep spreading and people who don't think that that's what we need to do i think are philosophically morally and fundamentally wrong and so that's why I think it is imperative that we have a pragmatic outlook on things like modifying genetics. And, and, and I want to live in a group of people who are pragmatically okay with killing one person to save four and being okay with people who are, who would make the same decision. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Um, my last feeling was just a sense of, um, not really revelation, but, uh, just a deep sense of understanding. I feel like now I understand 
your mindsets and positions much better. So I'm glad to have heard that speech of yours. That was really interesting to hear because now I can use that as a context. Yeah. Um, thing that hit me was I'm really glad that we're recording this because I'm going to want to revisit this. There are at least five or six different points that I want to address in that. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's quite a bit. Yeah. Sorry. I went on for a while there. I don't know. I'm sorry. It was, it was actually really good. Um, I was glad you did. I was glad you kept going. Um, one thing that I do want to hit, you said when you were talking about the, um, the ant colonies, how, the, the colony could be argued to be a genetic organism in the same way a human could be, um, where each ant is not valuable in the same way that each of our skin cells is not valuable. Uh, or I think that's, you would agree with that. Yeah, that, that's similar. Um, yeah, what else? yeah, exactly. When you said that, I, I wasn't sure if you were intending to draw some line of causality where you were saying, I didn't know if you were saying either, given that the a, a giant ant race existed in some way, then it should be that that each ant is not valuable, but it's the colony that's valuable. Right. Or are you saying that causally, because of the way that though that environment would come into being, then the ant ethics already would disagree with the value of an ant life and would agree with chiefly the oh. value of a colony life in like a uh, selfish gene sort of way. Okay, I see what you're saying. I see. I see. Are, are you're asking if. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're asking if the culture that would arise out of ant civilization would create the sense of uh, like the, the absence of the value yeah. of individuality or if it would be just the biology that creates this. And to be honest, I think it's both. I think there are a lot of biological factors in human culture which we don't realize are dictating the cultural trends we see and that's why i mentioned the selfish gene yeah yeah <clears throat> i think that's that's and i i think that's an important thing to realize and the the, yeah. di- the diversity of human culture can be can be explained by the fact that you have a number of individuals interacting with each other right but in this case we're talking about the culture that would exist in a sentient race of clonal beings right so if that was the case if we were all clonal or if we had a clonal set of ants living together their culture could not exist in any other way except for the way that their genes dictated. And I think that any manifestation of that culture could be predicted by their biology, if that makes sense. Uh, I don't know if I'm... And then if we observed it in some... I don't know if you've read the sequels to Ender's Game, but if we observed it, we would be in no position to say, no, you have to value this giant ant's life because there, everyone in that culture in that ant culture agrees that this is the right way to do it. Right. Um, so who are we to say? And I think that's why that. Ender, that's why Ender cries when he kills the colony, right? Like he, he's not, he has no qualms about murdering thousands of buggers. He has only qualms about murdering the queen and about bombing the planet, right? That's what gets him at the heart. You know, I think, I think that Orson Scott card saw that, that there's a difference in individual the value of individual life between clonal and non-clonal species. And so I think that that's exactly what, what you're trying to say is that this is precisely the value of science fiction. I, that's why I love it so much. Yeah. Um, it, obviously this is why I'm glad that your, uh, monologue from earlier was recorded because there's a lot of other points I'm going to re- revisit. I'm going to want to yeah, in the we can future. Yeah. Go back and talk about that. It's, we're coming up on the minute of the hour 30 mark. So probably about time for us to wrap it up. Considering 
I was considering asking you, should we kill Zika babies? But that's probably, <laughs> but you know, in a softer way, but that's, um, yeah, we've gone too yeah. long. No, I mean, I, I wish I knew more about Zika and, and I haven't heard so much about it recently. Have you, have you heard anything about Zika recently? Uh, you know, not for a year or so. Yeah. Hmm. Actually, I'm going to be traveling to that part of the, the world, the central and South America area, oh, yeah? um, in about a month here about that so i'll be sure business. not to contract for business good. no oh, okay. good good that's good i was wondering what your company would have what business they would have yeah. over there and that was going to be suspicious no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's good excellent well tell me about how that goes when it happens but um hey um thanks for joining me on this little duo do a podcast, Jake. This is I've I've actually decided that I won't thank you for having me on anymore because I've been on just as much as Bridget or Patrick now. So yeah, no, I think this is a thing now. Uh, it's just <laughs> I think it's gonna be if 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 it wasn't apparent already, we're we're doing podcasts based on who is available on which day, and I'm the one who does the recording and the editing, so I have to be on every single one. But uh, you're the leader, man. You're it's it's you, man. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's not like I'm uh, trying to make this something which only I have agency or responsibility for. You know, I, I want this to be a team effort, collaboration, and everything. But anyway, thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Off Days podcast, where we spoke about a wide range of subjects from what it means to be individual to mitochondrial DNA and the gene therapy techniques which exist and their possible ethical implications. I'm your host, PJ. Joining me today and engaging me in an extremely thoughtful and thought-provoking conversation was my co-host, Jake. Thanks again for joining us, Jake. Absolutely. And uh, if you'd like to reach out to us, we have an email at offdayspodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at www.offdayspodcast.com. And until next time, have a good off day. I've got a crush on you, sweetie pie. All the day and night time Hear me sigh Rush on you Sweetie pie All the day and night time Hear me sigh I've got a crush on you Sweetie pie All the day and night time Hear me sigh, rush on you, sweetie pie, all the day and night time, hear me sigh, I never